It's a pleasure having you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, your background? Thanks for the invite, first of all. My name is Joseph. I'm currently the CEO in a, in a team called PON, PWN. And yeah, my, my, I guess like I'll, I'll start with my crypto background. Got into like being crypto aware around like 12, 11, but didn't really pay any, pay like much attention. And uh, was mostly interested in like the use case of the, the magic and money. I didn't really look into attack at all. I mean, like I just I just knew like Bitcoin is just like my use on like the dark net and, and the internet. But that, that was about it. And it wasn't until 15, 2016 when I when I discovered Ethereum. Uh, I was basically like finishing my, my university degree, studied logic, just like part of math or philosophy, and basically the circle of friends where like you usually like people in like or with with math backgrounds or we are just like looking into these things, but on a, on a very like high level. And then a certain company that was in that stack or like educational technology and we're running running a startup for several years. And uh, then finally in 2015, 2016, I discovered Ethereum. And that was kind of the trigger point because this is when I started realizing like what you can actually like do with the tech and like what is it good for and how you can how you can like build kind of unprecedented products and, and tools with it. So I started digging deeper into it and I started like running meetups and coding workshops and started learning learning validity on my own. And eventually I was trying to turn this like epic startup where I was basically the youngest co-founder into like a certification, not not necessarily authority, but like a certification company would like run educational courses and would like understand the certification time chain. But nobody because like, everyone was skeptical about crypto and or everyone at the company obviously. And so I decided to basically just leave and, and uh, pursue a, a career like a freelance debt, which wasn't by choice, but it was basically the, you know, the circumstance we were in. Since uh, I was running the workshop, people started reaching out to me and like asking me for like freelance development of smart contract. And at first I, I did it for free because like, you know, like who am I to, to for something like this? I didn't even know like, you know, uh, enough about, about the stuff to, to basically like be comfortable getting paid for it. But then there was like so much just like inbound demands that I eventually basically started saying, well, you know, like happy to look into it, but I don't really have any time. And then people started offering me money for it. Well, I was like, well, I guess like if you pay me, I can't, I can't prioritize this. And it, I mean, it was like 2016, 2017, got like pretty ridiculous. I was living in Prague back then. And yeah, I feel like for, for quite a, like, quite a few months was maybe the only person in Prague, or at least I got the impression because literally everybody that got to me said they, they, they got my like reference or like somebody recommended them to talk to me from like multiple sources. So it all, all kind of circled. And eventually I, I stopped doing the coding. I started doing like after, after like a during office starting audits of uh, context contracts. And so I'm basically like, you know, was living this like solidity yeah, career. And finally in 2018, I met with a whole bunch of folks from the Ethereum Foundation. And that was before DEF CON 4 was being prepared in craft. I was like 
by then already I was like going to all of the conferences. I was basically like nomading and, you know, just again, lucky accident happened. So I, I met the person organizing DEF CON and we started talking and finally like when DEF CON floor was announced to be in Prague, I just got involved. And um, then after the event was done, I get an offer from, from the EF to join the full time. And I spent, long story short, I spent like four years within the Ethereum Foundation. But throughout that, I was basically losing my, you know, coding skills. So I would occasionally join a hackathon. And one of these hackathons were the Hack Money 2020 was like an online one where I wrote the the base for for Pawn or like what, what Pawn is now, which was like a generalized like borrowing and lending protocol where there were basically like no, there was, there was no white place, there, there was no, that there were no price oracles. That was basically like pretty elementary setup for, for lending. So it was like literally a pawn shop for tokens. And yeah, this was 2020 then in like 2021, I finally decided to pursue this as a, as a startup because I guess like quite naturally, this is, this is my tendency. And yeah, then in 2020, like mid 2021, we, we raised a pre-seed, we hired like 20 people and started working on pawn. And this is, this is what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, that's a very cool trajectory. Taking it back to when you were working at a Solidity developer, how was the switch from being a freelance developer to starting doing audits? Was it just like a natural evolution? Like clients were like, we need this code audited. And then you kind of decided, well, I can give it a try. Yeah, I guess, you know, there weren't like many tools that you could use uh, back then. So a bunch of this stuff was pretty intuitive and like, kind of like in retrospect. Yeah, of course. Like when I, when I see like the artists like these days, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't probably call the jobs that I was doing like back then audits or like, you know, like the, the tooling, the tooling and kind of the precision like these days is, is much better on the other side. Like none of the contracts that I audited were ever had. So, you know, I'm kind of happy about that. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the trajectory is like pretty, I would say like natural in the sense that you, you know, like you code something, then you need to test it. And then you basically like need to switch the, um, um, the perspective in your head and basically start looking at this as like, what if I wanted to break this? What would, what would I like try and like where could be like weak spots? So. Uh, you know, like once you, once you start coding, you can actually start like writing automated tests or like unit tests just to make sure that uh, the, the base components are basically doing someone what you expect, like the, the flow is, or like, you know, the, uh, the flow test, uh, just to make sure that indeed, like you can achieve the particle use case of the contracts. And then you start digging deeper and you, know, you start like working with like bunch of tools that are, that are provided like some, some basic like checkers that were available. And, and then of course there is also, you know, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, well, may, maybe they were, but they certainly weren't like very public about it. I wouldn't say like anybody, anybody at the time, like knew all of the, the, the vast like range of exploits or like possible exploits that can happen. Like, I mean, I mean if, if the industry was already like, prepared for all of these like strange exploits like re-entrancy or even like unit overflows. I mean like those were those were 
you know, known issues, but we still had to go through like major hacks. So people would start like actually worrying about these and, and would start like using, using like safe net libraries and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, it was basically like a process of making sure of like having like a list of list of exploits or like known exploits that you would try to test these contracts against. And some of it was like pretty, pretty manual. So in some cases, like just kind of the logical consequences of those contracts, like sometimes I would sit like with, uh, with pen and paper and just like try to make sense of like, like systematically, like is there a way on, on a high level, like even how those contracts are written, is there a way to like circumvent some of the functionalities? And then, you know, you would, you would use like, like automated automated testers for making sure that quantitatively the, the contracts work. So so yeah, I mean like it, it kind of like came to came to the point as well when I started rejecting more and more deals as a, as a freelancer because like people would approach me and like ask me, can you write these contracts? It'd be like why don't we like time for it? And we're like if we find like someone like even more junior, you know, like yeah, it's like fifteen years of experience. And I would still be pretty junior, but then they would they would find someone who just like started started coding or like went to some of some of the workshops like at a time, and then I would basically like look at their code and and like give it kind of the critical review. So that was that was the the process. Yeah, I think a few years back, that the amount of information available wildly was so much different. Now we can have all these repositories of all the hacks, but back then that, that wasn't such an insurmountable amount of information. Yeah. And yeah, I think to this day, paper and pen is probably one of the best, one of my favorite tools for auditing still, you know, I think using paper and pen is underrated. And how was your experience working for the Ethereum foundation? Yeah, I'll just like mention one one last one last shout out. I guess the, the, the tool that I was using by far the most was just like the remix debugger tool back then. That was like, yeah. like manually like click every every step and look look through the storage pointers and uh, it was it was maybe even more more useful than pen and paper. But yeah, going like into the app was I don't know, it was it was kind of like dream come true, right? Like I wanted to spend time in the ecosystem and this is this was like the, the closest I could get to it. And it was, yeah, I mean, like, it was exciting. I, you know, I was super, super happy to, to get the opportunity. And, you know, yeah, I knew, I knew it's, it, it will be like fuzzy. And I, I didn't have like a proper job before. I mean, like the, the first job that I had was like when I was 20, 21 and like started, I mean, like actual, like, you know, employment contract, I started working in a, in a, in a data center. I was like pretty pretty like easy like routine where you just like have to make sure like everything everything that was set up by someone else works and then i was basically like you know, you know working in a startup uh, and uh, freelancing so this was this was like second time for me where i got involved into into a team which was like already running and like there were already like things that were, that were functional and which essentially trying to make sense of all of this and I think like the, the time when I joined the EF was pretty much like transitional uh, from from the point where the organization was like run by a bunch of VOGs and there were there basically like setups that happened as the organization and the ecosystem grew. And when I was joining, there, there was this like break point and like you 
I guess, like, have this with any organization of this, like, agent and size where these, like, old systems that were mm, enabled or, or possible because, like, people generally, like, knew each other suddenly, like, stopped working. So we had to set up a whole, whole bunch of these, like, large or, I mean, it's not really, like, large organization, but, like, medium-sized organization processes uh, into place so the the wheels could, like, keep spinning. So for me, this was this was kind of a transition from like being a being a dev who has like a lot of hands-on experience and basically like enters the room with all of his heroes, where you get to talk to folks that like created the stuff that you were using on a daily basis. Where I had like zero, you know, zero like personal confidence into having any sort of opinion about anything because like these guys were the brains, right? Like I was like I was the, the stupid person in the room. And I was still the stupid person when I was leaving, but at least like it eventually turned from the point where I I had like a lot of lot of like hands on and actually like you know like practical practical like knowledge about the tech stack into looking at things from a much higher level because my my trajectory was essentially like I was hired by by Aya the uh, the executive director I would like work on her team and like try to basically like uh, facilitate um, the layer between like her and uh, a whole bunch of the R&D teams um, and like this would touch things like HR or like financial processes like just providing feedback on these processes and like being part of them and and then eventually like I would, I would just like focus on kind of the high level R&D stuff and doing like kind of roadmap reviews with these teams and like budget or like try to budget for for these projects and I would look into like the the overall the overall like funding needed from kind of the resource allocation perspective. And more and more I would just like look at the ecosystem as a whole instead of like being, you know, like in the beats and actually like using the the tech stack. And yeah, I guess this is what literally like you know, yet enabled because like it's it's kind of the the role of yet to kind of be aware of like how this garden looks like and then be able to here and there like support support like some initiatives within the ecosystem. So so yeah, I mean like it was all pretty exciting because it was basically this like last open space where you could like literally do anything that made made sense for the organization and like would would support the ecosystem. Uh, and it was largely up to like being proactive and actually pursuing like a particular pathway, uh, which was, yeah, I mean, it was like very like liberating on one hand, on the other hand, like you have this responsibility towards the entire ecosystem because like when, when you join the EF, it's like not like you're joining a company. It's like it's literally this organization that that just like is here to support the community and like support the tech. But ultimately its goal is to is to basically disappear eventually, right? So and there is this, this like strangeness in how you plan within the EF because it's not like you're trying to build the next Google or like huge like org. It's, it's literally like figuring out how you can eventually remove yourself from the system so the system can function without you. It's just a, such a different type of system because traditional companies, you know, it's very much black and white, what needs to be done, but building something that you have to remove yourself from completely, it's so counterintuitive. 
it's a sort of a unique environment that probably the processes you had to implement and the things you had to have in mind are very different from traditional companies. And I was wondering if there's any scenario that stuck with you from, from that type of experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. So, so I guess like one of the one of the perspectives that I gained from that, or like during, like while we were building these processes, was that, you know, like it's not like it's not like most people that work at VEF like need the job or like I mean, you know, most of most of them or like especially the people who are in the ecosystem for long enough and who basically have build up this ecosystem, they, they kind of like look at work and what they spend time on like differently. It's not like they work for, for money. Like and you know, there, there are like two types of two types of people, I guess like there are like people who don't work for money but like work for values and there's a lot of them within the yeah. and I would say it's even like one of the criteria it's actually like that mindset as you know kind of the, the mindset usually is, is a prerequisite for being able to join the org. Or those people have been like long enough though they no longer have to work for money. And and that's what you have to kind of like take into account. It's it's not like like money is a really motivation. And like with traditional companies or like like businesses, this would be the tool that you'd use to like motivate people. This is like, you know, it's like capitalism baselines, like you you give you give people salary and therefore they to kind of like work on what, what you want them to work on. In this environment it's like it's it's turned in the sense that it's, it's, the, the organization is more of a collective than a company, really. It's, it's just like people that tend to work towards the same goal and they're, they have like a different motivation and you have to take into account. It's not like if you, if you make like a leadership decision, you basically have a, have a workshop with like five people and you come, come to a conclusion of like, hey, this is the direction the entire like organization or ecosystem should, should take. Of course, like you can and should have these considerations on a very high level, like having individuals who have this like uh, kind of big picture view, but then that's not the end, end of it, right? And quite often in a traditional organization, this, this would be the end of it. This would be like the board decision of like, hey, this is the new direction, we go this way. With the app though, you basically have to make sure that it's not only what kind of you think on a, on a high like leadership level, but you have to figure of like what's what's kind of the course that I, I don't want to use the word like consensually because there are already like so many people that like finding you know, you know like finding consensus like impossible if you're trying to like do it in a in a full way. But there are because the consensus here is like on the values that you're like pursuing. So you have to you have to figure out like what what other people think like what is the direction they would like to they would like to take and then basically come to you know come come to the conclusion like first once you've considered kind of both approaches like the top to bottom and like the bottom up approach and the you know the answer though i mean it's a cliche where it like lies somewhere in the middle it's not like you can't do what the leadership wants to do you also can do only what kind of the the, the individuals want to do because you wouldn't achieve much. So it's like about finding the constant balance between the, the two of them. And I think like it has worked within the app, 
especially because the, the people working within the org are like so dedicated, and like so value aligned that once they once they basically like is aligned on these like principles, it's like much easier to just like even do these experiments and say like or you know like have this this tolerance towards like experiments saying well yeah like it's it's fine like i don't know i don't know quite a lot about like the vertical direction but well it you know it fulfills these like basic checkpoints that i have and therefore like i'm fine with like this being pursued so so yeah i guess like this is this kind of perspective that was that was like revealed to me within the uh, I guess, like, to, to say something conclusive is that, like, if you find the people with uh, with the right value set, it's like, and then finding a, this, like, common goal is, like, much easier than trying to take just, like, a huge variety of people and, like, trying to align their values. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you think that experience helped you start your own protocol? How was that transition from leaving the... EF to starting your own protocol? I mean, I'm not sure whether it was, that, that probably wasn't kind of the trigger point. There were like multiple other trigger points, but it certainly gave me a better sense of how, if I, if I started building a team from scratch, like how would I approach this? It definitely, it definitely gave me like a different, I would say taste on how would I select people to work with? So, yeah, if I, if I just like recall the transition, I mean, like there were there were like multiple multiple things that kind of triggered me into starting something separate from from the EF. So, like, a I was I was like working with multiple teams that spun out out of the EF, and I was I was kind of you know like I'm very aligned with the idea of like everyone should leave EF eventually. Like I literally think that it's it's not a place where you pursue like a career for ten years because like if you do very likely you are going to become a blocker eventually. Like the ecosystem just like makes moves like much faster than like individuals, and like I wouldn't recommend anyone like looking for like a stable job for like five to ten years to to join the org. And maybe maybe there are, there are definitely like spots where that could work, but personally like. I wouldn't say that's a that's a place to go to. Like if that happens, I, I think the organization will stagnate. So I, I I would say like this is a particular case where some sort of like fluctuation is actually beneficial, both from from the perspective of like the the, the organization not getting stagnant and also the ecosystem basically being influenced further than it would just if like everybody was part of the yeah. And it was like one of the motivations of like, hey, I actually wanna. I was working with several like teams that were outside of the, and I kind of like wanted to, you know, like build a team on my own. I wanted to like be able to, to build something significant, like something that can stand on its own legs, and that would eventually like be able to contribute to a whole bunch of the initiatives that that was part of within because like the, the way I see it and there's like several thoughts that I had on the topic is that again like EF should disappear eventually and like there there have to be companies, projects, other initiatives within the ecosystem that would basically substitute certain roles of like what EF, EF has. And yeah, I, I think that like the closer those organizations are to the value set that, that was that was dominant within the EF, the greater 
the chance for the entire ecosystem to survive long term. So, so it was like one of the motivations. The second one was by like, you know, getting on a higher level, I was like losing the hands-on competence. I wanted to gain it back and I started coding again. And this was I, like, I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't justify, I couldn't justify becoming a developer within, within the Ethereum competition. Like there were, you know, like my, my skills were like way too inferior to, to like anyone, anyone who, who did anything close technical within the organization. That's just like no way for me to to pursue that and and like stay within the org. So it's kind of like a way for me to justify as well, like spending time coding at least for a bit. And yeah, then like I also had like personal personal reasons why I just like wanted to move on. And and as I mentioned, like I'm, I guess like I'm pretty entrepreneurial, like generally like. It, Started a company or like joined starting a company when I was 19 and didn't didn't really you know ever think that I could just like work any in any other place than like something that I'm that I'm like trying to build up with others where yeah like we're kind of like I'm I'm the person who's like accountable and also like not not only to everyone in the company but but also to to myself so that was that was another motivation. And from all the types of protocols you could have started, why did you decide to start a lending and borrowing protocol? That's a good question. And then I guess like that comes to kind of the, the personal story of that, where and like I was I was working with like like a whole variety of teams, like from like client devs and like tooling tooling builders. I didn't really work with kind of the application side or like apps, like what was idea. At the same time, like like I, I reached out to some when we were doing like the client fundraiser and so on. So I had a I had a crew of like who are people in the ecosystem, what are the what are they building? And I was always I was always kind of you know like inspired by like DeFi and just like the general. This was this was kind of the is it this is the entry level entry level like value set that's you you kind of. Mm-hmm. I guess like inherit from from how this whole ecosystem started, which is like you know not your not your keys, not your crypto, and just like the, the self sovereignty aspect of everything. And to to me, like DeFi really is like one of the killer applications of like what, what blockchain is created. I guess like empirically, like this is the the majority use case. So I thought like, well, this is this is something where I could actually like see stuff happening quite quickly, um, versus like. Yeah, it would be cool to start like a you know like another like roll up project and like work on like scaling and these types of things. At the same time, like it's the the I guess the, the prospects of that are much more like experimental even than than DeFi. Like DeFi already has somewhat like a proven model, um, uh, so this was this was like pretty tangible. And it is more of like the philosophical like reasoning about like doing something which is maybe not as exciting uh, as like the, the new tech stuff, but actually like building a product that can bring the value like immediately where, where you already basically have all of the components in place for, for that thing to work. And then like a major, I guess, like thing was happening in my own life was that like I was getting in my, in my thirties and I was thinking about getting a mortgage and I was, I was essentially rejected by, by a bank like twice. Once for the first time was because like I, I 
I was earning salary in in ETH, and I would have like a, like a paper contract, but also like the transactions would basically like come to my to my wallet address, and they would they would basically reject me because and with the explanation that I'm, I'm not actually earning any real money, and then. And but for me, it was like real money, right? Like this was the way I was like making a living for several years. And then B, the second time I came to the bank were like two, like a year and a half, like almost years to prove like a track record of actually having like the transactions coming into my bank account. There, there was this like new field saying or asking if I have any exposure to cryptocurrencies from like a holder or trader or whatever. I know this was still while I was working at the EF, to which I could only like I could only tick that box, right? It was like no way for for me to say anything else. Like I'm literally like living the ecosystem, and yeah, both of these would, would essentially mean that I'm I was not eligible for getting a mortgage. To which I could only say like, well, hey, this is strange. It's like literally. Like you're literally like rejecting someone who and like you know I was I was lucky like I mean like I, being being like Czech by origin but like working remotely with with basically an international organization like my my average income was like way above the average of of like of people living in Prague at the time so so I it kind of felt weird and I felt like I'm being like discriminated because of the industry I work in and the rational conclusion for me at the time was like well i don't need that. like you know there's this there's this entire like the, the premise of like why i'm in this ecosystem is that like I, I don't i don't need to work with this intermediary like i don't i don't need to borrow someone else's money through a bank where they basically hold all of the keys we can i mean it's like so easy like the, the mortgage setup like on chain is actually super easy sure like we don't we don't have like real world assets or whatnot. We don't have like tokenized real estates on chain. I'm certain this will happen eventually, but as well, like, you know, the entire mortgage concept is basically just like, you, it doesn't even have to be real estate. Like you can literally like collateralize like stocks or like stock portfolios. You can collateralize like art. And these financial institutions will give you like mortgage, like loan against those. And the whole reason why we do that is that like, you don't want to lose exposure to those assets you want to keep them but you need some like liquidity and like you you know like i'm i'm in crypto like i don't like i didn't really worry about like real world asset for for a long time but like i have like i know like so many people whose like entire like network is in crypto because they did like believe this ecosystem so much and they basically blew up in it and now this was the Kind of realization of like there's actually this like real problem of like if you if you can't get a mortgage because you're in crypto you have your entire network in crypto like the only way for you to basically for real estate is that you have to go and sell your crypto and therefore like lose the exposure to those assets that you wanted to keep for the future so well basically those institutions would push you towards like you losing your stake and then like getting uh, getting kind of the, the assets of the old world and like to me this was this was like conceptually this was like so easy to write in a contract in a smart contract so we started building that and, so, and this is this is how i wrote the baseline for for pong and yeah even though even though pong still is this like universal lending protocol for like any asset on chain um or like pretty, pretty like simple loan setups 
what we are building this towards is is a, is a like full fledged like mortgage protocol where you'll be able to get like a loan for like five to ten years and basically have this like digital mortgage that you just repay on chain even using some things like assembly or like superfluid and like these like automated like payment systems and you could get like um, like a larger ballpark of like stable coin loan and go like buy real estate and like have this have this like back on chain and eventually. 10, 20 years, I'm sure we'll get to a point where even the real estate will be tokenized. So you'll be able to, like, without ever talking to anyone and, like, like, like just like clicking a few buttons without, like, having, having to go through some sort of a rating process of a random person that doesn't know anything about you, but still decides about, like, what you do with your life sitting at a branch office. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get to a point where this will become like completely, completely digitalized. And, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to make sure Paul is part of the future. That's awesome. I love to hear more about how to think those integrations with other money level protocols like Superfluid or software could work. But before you get into that, can we go over and elaborate a little bit more what is Spawn, what, it, what does it do, how does it uh, work as a lending and borrowing protocol? Uh, absolutely. So Spawn is, is a universal permissionless um, borrowing and lending protocol mm -hmm. that allows you to use any standard token, so any ERC20, 721, or 1155 uh, token, or a bundle of those tokens as collateral against a fixed term, fixed rate mortgage type of loan. By the mortgage type of loan, I mean, this is essentially a loan that you either repay or it defaults. And if it defaults, you lose the collateral. So that's, and that's also the only occasion where a borrower can lose the collateral. Uh, so there is no price oracle that would like trigger liquidation, which is like kind of what happens in, in DeFi right now. So you can, you can like literally see the, see the cases like, Hey, I have a, you know, 10,000, 10,000 of like unit tokens or like a board ape or something. And I lock this as, as collateral in a contract, like a very simple like contract escrow. And then I get some liquidity from it's peer to peer. So from someone else. And if I don't repay the loan, I lose the collateral. If I would pay it, which means like I pay the little loan in full before it expires plus interest then I just like get the collateral back and everything is back to back to where it was. So, so yeah, currently the simplest way to think about pawn is like a contract for any token. There's no, there's no whitelist. There's no like permission set of, uh, of tokens that can be used. So literally anything can be used as long as it finds a lender. So it's a, a more of a marketplace. And there's like a whole bunch of like the features that's, that's kind of lead towards the, the defined mortgage case. Where, for instance, with the with the on safe feature, which is an extension on on safe the safe smart contract wallet, you can also for certain assets, it's not like completely permissionless. That there is a whitelist just to make sure that those assets like don't have any kind of uh, magical features, but it's still like a good range of assets. You can actually like use those assets as collateral, but still utilize their features like voting rights or like claiming airdrops or like using those assets in a game or like setting them up if, if those are like ENS, ENS names or like any, any sort of actually like usable, usable asset. So yeah, if you're, if you're a borrower, someone who's looking for liquidity, you can essentially come to Pawn and you can either see whether there are already, asked, uh, there are already offers on those assets that you own, or you can make a loan request. 
where people basically see, hey, there is a, there is a person who is looking to borrow like this much and this much against like this particular collateral, and you can then like pick from those offers. Or if you're a lender, you can come to Pawn and you can either see the loan requests which are there, or you can make an offer just as an open sea against like any asset, so any any NFT, any fungible token in any size, and then have this have this offer to live for like few days. And anyone who comes to the to the platform can then like execute the offer, and you will basically result in being the lender for that particle collateral. And as a lender, you get this like NFT. Uh, that represents the entire loan. So if you wanted to, if you didn't want to wait for expiration of the loan for that loan being like repaid or defaulted, you can basically take it and you can like sell it to someone else immediately, which is which is basically like a preparation for a world where like these types of loans will be much more common than you'll be able to like even like have a portfolio of loans and like have some like APY generated based on them or like an index of loan of like same category of loans and so on. Yeah, cool. I think that's a nice overview. And you mentioned it's a protocol free. Oh, sorry, it's a Oracle free protocol. Why did you make the decision to go Oracle free? Yeah. So first of all, like you know, like having a smart contract that doesn't have like any like third party interference, is still like coming actually from like this early cohort of of like. Solidity devs that entered the space when there were no oracles, and like the, the oracle problem was like far from being solved. Like when I when I, you know, started developing in Solidity, it was basically this one company called Oraclize, and I think they renamed already. But that was that was the way to get like data on chain. It was like, yeah, it was a it was a good concept. It was like centralized. It, uh, it did the thing that it promised to do, uh, but. It was obvious to everybody. It was like this was kind of suboptimal. It wasn't really the way like smart contracts were supposed to work. Um, and to me, like figuring out the system where things are actually immutable and like you can like to, to me like an oracle is you know a like a convenience but also an attack vector. And we've seen this recently with like many many hacks. And I kind of wanted to, I didn't want to just build a product. I guess like I wanted to make sure we create something universal and we build a product on top of it. And when I was like designing, designing Pawn, it wasn't really like a consideration of like why an Oracle should be there. I mean, like you can always add an Oracle later for something that like plugs in into the protocol. If you wanted to have like a custom liquidation or something like that, but you know, ultimately, it's not really needed. Like, I felt like, hey, there, there is actually uh, a variety of products that all use the same setup of like you have a you have like two pools of money and you have some sort of like oracle that kind of from time to time like checks the healthiness of the system. And we've seen this to fail like horribly. Like, I don't know, it was like 2018, maybe 19. I don't I don't even know when. Like, there was this like case where you know prices started to drop and like there was this like four million dollar like gap created in, in MakerDAO because of a faulty oracle. It's just like uh, or not a faulty oracle. It was actually all aligned with the setup, right? The, the oracle, which is just like a, a wallet somewhere or like a key somewhere that's like signs some number and sends it into a contract, the transaction just didn't make it true. And like so many people got 
affected by it. Like I, and I was, I was actually one of the lucky, lucky ones that didn't get liquidated, didn't have this like CDP liquidated just because there was this like time gap, and I was able to like actually front run the Oracle price to like close my position. So and like these these situations just like made me realize, hey, like we can actually. It's not like you need an Oracle for everything. Like it's not like you need a price you need a price feed for like every contract and you can for certain things you know you can think of loans on on more as like options than like DeFi lending because that's that's ultimately what you do as a lender but then there are these like nice components like tokenizing the loan and like providing this optionality of like being able to step out of the position that you can you can basically like replace the oracle liquidation protection for and it can still work. So I, I just didn't want to do like yet another like DeFi lending that works exactly the same way. I thought like, hey, this is actually like much simpler. This is this is like a very basic like essential design that like like anyone, not just like people who are already DeFi, but someone like a newcomer that comes to a place, they can they can understand this like much easier. If you tell them it's a sponsor for token, it's you know it's it's just like so stupid and simple. There is no like black box magic involved, and it's also like much more secure because well, you remove this like huge attack vector of like third-party data interference. Yeah, you can provide like much much greater certainty for users. Yeah, that makes sense, and I guess that ties into why it doesn't have traditional liquidations as well. So when a borrower borrower defaults, how does the owner recoups the collateral so as i mentioned like as a lender what you get instead at the time when the transaction is being executed or like the loan is being executed is that you get this like nft representation of the loan as an nft because all of these loans are individualized and then whoever owns that nft so this is something that you can it's like your right to claim the the lended amount plus interest or the collateral in case of default so whoever owns the NFT upon expiration of the loan is able to claim the, the collateral. So it works the same way with the repayment. So if you own this NFT, you can claim the repayment or repayments with the installment functionality. So so this is and this is basically the, the protection that we see is like needed because like then like there are two two points to this. Like you as well, like as a lender, you're the person setting the loan to value. So if you're lending, if you're making positions that are kind of denominated in the same currency, like you would say, like you have like ETH as collateral, ETH as a as a lended asset, it's like easy, easy to strike balance, right? It's like you just like set like you can go like pretty high on the loan to value as well. Uh, it's fine. Uh, or if you have like some wrap token, and I guess it's more of a use case. Like if you have some wrap ETH, which is like uh, not supported by like other other like pool based protocol. Uh, where, where you could achieve like this high level of loan to value. And this is something we are also doing on Kronos uh, right now with like the stake NFTs, um, where you basically have the same denomination on Humble Debt. But then if you have something where there is a greater uncertainty, then basically it's rational to go for a much lower loan to value. So what we've seen so far with like things like NFTs or some like low cap coins, is like loan to value around like 30%, 40%. Which, like, I mean, isn't great, obviously, but it's it's something that you can work with already, and it's something like significant, and you can definitely like 
already do interesting, interesting like added trades or just like get like decent liquidity out of it already. And then if the if you're if you're a lender, this is basically your buffer on like where the price can drop to and still like make, making money on the loan. Uh, but then if you stop being uncomfortable with the price movement, then you can you can basically decide to sell your position. And while you will sell it with the discount to someone else, still like being in the greens or like the black numbers, because like the, basically the the lended amount and interest is the is in the range where you like you are making money. Plus, like if the the collateral price like is much greater than than what you're risking at the moment, this can also be your upside. And you can basically like sell it to someone who you know like is a maybe potential buyer for the asset who was like looking to get it with a, with a huge discount. So if you, if you lend it at like 30% loan to value and all of a sudden like loan to value is like 60% because of the price of the collateral dropped, well, it's still it's still like quite a huge discount for someone to get the particle item. So, so yeah, that's kind of the, the system that we put in place to protect the lenders eventually. And this is kind of where you know, it relates to the pipeline. Eventually, as I mentioned, like, we could also involve like custom price oracles or like basically optional liquidations for certain loans, but there, there's like multiple, multiple different ways to achieve this. So we're still like researching which one is the, is the best one. But for but like, as of now, we think that like this already has quite a lot of optionality, like how you can protect yourself as a lender. And of course, like there, you know, it depends on like, the duration of the loan as well. Like currently, most of the loans are pretty quick and snappy. So you can like calculate the risk at the time you're making the loan. Yeah. And how do you see the future for Pawn? How do you see playing with different kinds of protocols and kind of fitting in this money Lego thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it like goes back into the decision to make this like open permissionless protocol. So like for us, we, we are not trying, trying to compete for like blue chip NFTs or like vertical asset class. We literally want to be part of the, of the, of the infrastructure and tooling. So we are deploying to all of the EVM compatible chains. We're also working on like now other implementations of Pawn. And we basically want to be the baseline, like borrowing and lending protocol for, for any asset. So like, if you have, if you have like a new ecosystem or like new community, with their own assets, let's say like, maybe a stupid example, but let's say, let's say you have like a gaming economy because like Pawn is like so open on like both sides of like, what's, what's the collateral, what's the lended amount or like, what's the lended asset you can, and we've already seen this, you can have basically loans against gaming assets backed by the gaming currency. So imagine you have like a, you know, we have like World of Warcraft on chain. And as soon as you deploy it, there is this functionality of like, hey, I can actually like, you know, like buy this particle gaming item, this like sword, like magical sword, and I can like use it and like repay it with with the the money that I'm with the gold that I'm like winning winning from the game or like farming in the game. So and you can already do, do these things right now. Like we've seen this with like the other gotchas, for instance. So you have like loans back by where the, the people like borrowed ghost tokens against them. So kind of the exposure is like roughly the same. They understand the, they understand the dynamics, but it's, you know, like probably no one else but the Avagachi community sees value in 
actually like borrowing ghost tokens or whatever. And like, I'm, I'm not here to like tell them like what they should do. I'm basically like, we just want them to have the optionality to do that. Yeah, I see. And you also mentioned that you have a safe based wallet, like a smart contract wallet. Can you elaborate a little more on that and why you decided to make it as well? Yeah, so uh, it's actually, I think it's probably our most undersold feature. It's it's basically an extension of uh, of the safe smart contract wallet, which you can use as a as a user account. And then for the assets that you have in the wallet, you can generate something that we call the ATR, the asset transfer right. It's basically like an NFT wrapper of the transfer function of a particle asset. So what it allows you to do is basically like let's let's say you have you have like DAO voting rights or like DAO DAO tokens in the wallet, and you can use those to vote in a DAO. Now in the in the basic setup, if you wanted to use that as collateral, uh, that would mean that you would have to take all of those tokens, send them into an escrow, which would like change the balance of those tokens, and then you would be able to only execute the vote function once you repay the loan, you get them back, and you vote. That uh, with the ATR though, what you can do is that like you have those assets in your wallet, you generate ATR, which basically like locks transfers or burning of those tokens if you don't have the ATR. So, and then you use the ATR and you use that as collateral. And what the ATR does is that it blocks like any change of balance of that particle item in your smart contract wallet. And it gives a right to anyone who has the ATR to reach inside of your wallet and get those assets from you. So it's basically just like deed of like, hey, it was a, my, my right to claim something from some, someone else's custody. And obviously, as long as those ATR tokens are locked in this like very simple like token collateral escrow, there is no way for someone else to like touch your assets. But if you default, then the person claiming the loan, they can just like reach, reach in and get those assets. But for the time being, like you can, those assets are still in your wallet. And if you don't change their balance, you can still like use them to vote. You can still claim airdrops because like the balance is there. You can still like access games through like wallet connect and like use use like just log into game and use your your like magical swords or whatnot that you hold in your wallet, but you like use them as collateral elsewhere. So yeah, that's basically the the functionality of Ponsafe. So if you could summarize, what would be the big difference between Pawn and other lending protocols with like everything taken into account? Nowadays, there's already a variety, but I guess the, the main difference between the, the most popular lending protocols like Aver Compound is that look, uh, Pawn is, is peer-to-peer and it doesn't, doesn't have the same like liquidation system, uh, which means there's like slightly higher risk for the lenders, but also like much higher APY or like much larger returns. And then compared to like any other protocol in the ecosystem, which I think is it's true for, I don't know, like 99.9% of them, is that Pawn is completely permissionless. So again, like you can use it for any asset, any standard token out there now already. Like you, you don't have to go through like a down vote. You don't have to like ask anyone for permission. You can just search for the asset. You will see it in your, in your dashboard. And even if you are like a community that's just like getting started, you can already start having these like community funded loans. And, you know, like this is, this is like to me, for some of these communities, this is also the way now to, 
showcase that there is actually like a greater demand for those tokens than just like trying to you know like publish them on like centralized exchanges because there there's like more utility in those assets actually than than just like trading them yeah and when you're hosting a safe that is going to you know be responsible for holding the value for these communities and you know meaningful projects of people trying to achieve things of course you have to ensure it's secure and people are not just going to lose their assets right and your contracts has seemed to have a very healthy ratio between the number of lines for the protocol and the number of lines for the tests which is something i used to i always like to have a quick look at because usually you can tell how much testing is actually being done just by looking relatively like is their testing suite much bigger than the protocol and if yes that's usually a good sign usually not necessarily and you guys seem to have a a good ratio so what advice would you give to other builders or CEOs trying to minimize the possibility of getting hacked? So, so like two comments there. Like first of all, like the JavaScript, the JavaScript code naturally tends to be much longer than the Solidity one. But our like Solidity contracts are like heavily, heavily commented. So it's actually I would say there's like more comments than than the, the lines of code. So I'm not sure whether you're counting that. I would be quite curious to actually see a ratio because I don't think I have a look. But uh, yeah, there, there is there's like basic principles to finally get to answering the question. So first of all, write tests, but don't write them on your own. Like you should at least like have like two pairs of eyes uh, because there's a natural tendency of overlooking one's mistakes. And like sometimes the mistakes are actually like design patterns that person's like naturally choosing and not seeing kind of the full potential impact of some, some, some of these decisions. So that's, that's number one, like have someone else to write the tests and like, make sure that like you write all the tests for, for everything possible. There, these days there's already like a good toolkit for, or like black toolkit for automated like testing beyond just the test that you write yourself, just like looking for, again, like these like re-entrancy design patterns and so on. So there's a good, good number of tools and be like, even like then, if you, if you intend to like touch other people's money with those contracts, or, I mean, it's a, it's a, I guess like the statement is wrong. Like if you intend to have these contracts live and like let people interact with them using their own funds, you should make sure that you get like at least two independent audits from like reputable, reputable uh, auditing from Simba in the ecosystem. And like since 2017, the this improved like tremendously. There's like so many good firms that you can you can work with. Our smart contracts are the protocol smart contracts are audited by Extropy and Nettermine. You can find like both of these uh, both of these audits on on our website. If you go to the Pluter or which is like audits.pond.xyz. And as well, important case for for the pond safe is that like you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. I mean like. Other considerations that we had, like looking into PonSafe or the PonSafe functionality, was that hey, we we need a feature like this, and probably have to build our own like smart contract wallet, which very likely is a very stupid decision. Like you already have this like power tool in the form of the safe code base, and the likelihood of like you making a tragical mistake and like implementation of this is like so high that it doesn't really outweigh like using using you know someone else's code which is like open source 
and which already provides a good tool set for well, like plugins and, and just like extensions of that. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe the, the execution of these things will be like a tiny bit higher, but it's just maybe because like their contracts are also like heavily optimized. But yeah, I mean, like they're, they, you know, we just like have a, have a great like track record and like have spent a much more on security audits than like any of the, uh, any of the companies like thinking about building smart control could probably spend. So yeah, don't always like try to build everything on your own. I, I think it's like fine to use like the battle proven code bases out there. And on that note, I'll also say that that can be also a bit of a foot gun if you're not careful, because we see time and time again, people are forking projects and not really deeply understanding how they work and making changes that end up making them vulnerable. So using battle-tested code is, of course, no-brainer, but at the same time, people have to be careful to not think that it's just invulnerable. You know, like if you change something, it makes it vulnerable. If you, if you added a line, it's not the same code anymore. So it's important to keep that in mind. And something else that I saw in the Palm website that drew my attention was the crypto native economy report that I thought it was pretty cool. So can you talk a little bit about it and why did you decide to, to do that kind of report? Oh, gladly. I would just like add to, to the last to, to the last comment you had, like what, what I meant is was like the, the logical end between all of these things. It's just like have tests, have independent audits and like try to reuse code bases that are battle proven. Like I definitely don't don't mean it in the sense that like if you if you just like copy someone else's code, like you can assume it's like out of it. No. But I use that. Like if you if you actually you can you can no longer like uh, rely on on the soundness of, of the contract. And yeah, about the crypto native report, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> this is so this is something this is something that has like I guess like two meanings. One is the, the crypto native economy report is essentially looking into the on-chain generated revenue or rhetorical revenue. So we we think and this is basically the, the whole premise of like how we built or like why we built on and like well, the, the way we build it or influences the way we build it, is that um to me, like now is the time where we can build tools and products for this like demographic group uh, of, of like crypto natives. So like people who are in crypto already, who understand the implications, who understand the benefits and also the risk. And my assumption or premise was that while this group is big enough already and the market is big enough that we can actually build sustainable business models and like build like sustainable protocols in the ecosystem already, which I don't think was the case like, you know, four years ago. And to prove this or, you know, like prove, prove it wrong, we actually wanted to look into the data. So the crypto native economy report looks at how much, how much are users willing to pay for using the different protocols or dApps. We basically don't look at you know, like the crypto payments. We don't look at like centralized exchanges. We don't look at any of the, any of like the enterprise, like consulting stuff around crypto. We also don't look at like validator or, or minor rewards. We just look at like purely how much are people using the tech stack willing to pay for using it and whether that's sustainable. 
so as I mentioned, like part of part of the stuff that I was I was doing with NDF was like having this like high level picture, high level like big picture overview. And I would you know I would spend time looking into kind of the width of the core of the ecosystem and like how much money, how much funding would it require like annually to to keep it running. And then from this, I would like look into the the variety of like on-chain treasuries and projects that are making money and that we could actually assume long term that because like those are somewhat sustainable or at least profitable there is a likelihood that those protocols like MakerDAO or Aave could contribute to the overall like public good in form of the infrastructure development so this is the crypto native economy report is an extension of that we basically like are looking at like annual numbers or like monthly numbers of l1s l2s and the, the different dApps uh to uncover like which which protocols are the most used like uh, how much revenue there actually sits in those which dApps are used like what are the categories of dApps that are the most used what are the what are trends of it like whether you know like we kind of recover turn to their market or not really in terms of usage uh, of the tech stack and so on so there are already like two reports published there is a, the the first numbers we, we gathered kind of mid 2020 one no no like 2022 in july when there was this talk at etc where I, where i discussed like how much this was like kind of still while we were still in the bull market then we did this like huge report by the end of 2022 where you can see the entire 2022 numbers and uncover like which protocols were the most used and which dApps and then we did like a sanity check now mid uh, mid-year with the uh, q1 and q2 report uh, of 2023, where you can like compare it to last year and see where was the was the trajectory so far. And coming to the, the motivations, like there are two. Like first, I think it's necessary for us as a project to be able to see these and like if if we we want to build we want to build something that's sustainable and actually has like sustainable like income for the team to keep operating and. I, I think we are getting into states where we're kind of like past the hype and projects will be evaluated based on like whether they actually like generate like user demand and like generate revenue. Um, and for us, it's like important to know like which ecosystems are like worth pursuing, like which 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 protocols like we should deploy to because they have user adoption uh, and what are kind of the general general like patterns of the ecosystem. Uh, and then B, like while we have those numbers. You know, I'm, not, I'm a huge believer in, in basically like providing things to the virus system. Like, I still believe we are in the stage where the, the ecosystem is still so small. You can see it in those reports. I mean, like, it seems like we are playing with huge numbers, but not really. I mean, like, most of the protocols are like way below, you know, revenues of like some of some of the tech companies out there, and not even the largest ones. So I still take it as like if. If you, you know, if, if you win as as a member of the ecosystem, as like a any company in the ecosystem, then we all win because like we are still growing, growing as an industry. So we want to provide like this information to to the wide wider public. We want it to provide to you, especially to the crypto natives. And uh, yeah, we'll just like keep publishing these hopefully useful reports so people can use them as like sources for their own research and like looking into the, the niche and so on. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll leave a link in the description. And how do you collect the data to create these reports? Because that sounds like something that would be kind of arduous to do. 
Uh, yeah, but there are already huge like resources for this. So the, the baseline for the data, the data sheet basically was by uh, token terminal, and there is a second source for for validating the data. I can't recall like which source that was now, but it's certainly like mentioned in the sources of the report. And another thing you you're involved in is organizing local events, like for example, if Prague. Can you elaborate a little bit on? What drives you to organize these events? What do you think is special about in real life events? Why people should attend them? Why uh, companies so, should organize events? So, I mean, this, this perhaps like isn't something that we do as a spawn. It's more of like my like like personal hobby. <laughs> I would say at this point. So, like I joined when, when I joined the EF, I was basically a part of the DevCon team, and I was I was doing this like like hot fixing of, of stuff on site in Prague. And then I would continue with the with the DevCon team, and like we would plan Saka and early on Bogota as well. But you know, there's like a huge, there's a huge like production and like crew behind DevCon these days. And I kind of like with the with like other interests that I had, I always wanted to because like production, like event production is fun for me. Like I, I like generally like it, and like like the why, like like to see kind of the quick iterative process because like you literally like, spend six months in the like. But not like full time, right? But like within the team, like make left word, and then the event happens, and you see it, and like you can already improve it for for next year. So it's like big big piece of the motivation is this kind of like fun process, and you know I, I tend to coming coming from kind of the the meetup stage of like Ethereum, I see the I see like how far it it is. Right, like I see, I see the difference between the early meetups and kind of the future events that are happening now. So I, I just generally feel um, it's it's useful to like help foster the local communities and like try to bring people to wherever you live and like make them mingle with the local crowd because it supports the local crowd and then it's it's like much easier for you even to like find collaborators or just like people to talk to and to share ideas with and so on. So, so yeah, I'm just like trying to like keep on that kind of like vibe and, and promise to the community here, like I'll keep on like supporting it some way. And that's why we basically started organizing in Prague and then Ethereum Zurich as well. And it's, yeah, just like find it useful and fun. So <laughs> that's the short answer. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges of, of organizing those events? Because they're quite big events and from what I've heard until this point, you don't really come from a event background. I mean, I mean I've been for, for a good part of my professional career. Like I was, I was kind of like contributing event to two events. I was hosting my own. So like I came from meetups, right? Like started doing meetups and I organized like smaller hackathons, which weren't like crypto related, but these were, these were kind of like a passion thing for like within the local community. And the DEFCON obviously is a huge event, so I would, I would say definitely help to work with like big productions and kind of like people who are actually coming from from the events background. I just want to highlight, like I'm, you know, there there is there is a huge team, sorry, there is a huge team behind these projects as well. It's not like me organizing it. Like I usually give the initial impulse and just basically like set the trajectory and then complain about everything uh, and. Uh, the the crew is actually the are the, the, the brains and like muscles behind like the the entire operation 
and like those people have production background so you know it gets much easier if you actually work with professionals and skilled, skilled people are just like enthusiasts as well because like some most i would say like even most of the people like that are now building DevCon, like it's not like they are production uh professionals either right like they, they work with them i mean they became production professionals when they joined they were enthusiasts and that like and that that's a huge piece of the event success i mean like you have to you have to love it right like, you have to build I, I don't know i don't know anyone in the uh i guess like ethereum events organizing who is who is hosting events as, as a business it's like mostly gathering community like bringing friends friends in and yeah then if you don't have to denominate the sectors of the event and like monetary value it gets much easier just like make sure that the production crew lives and that's you know that's that's the core but yeah but like still think like if you're an enthusiast and you find it fun it's like it's it's these are like event problems are nice problems to have yeah yeah that's an interesting perspective that if you're just doing the event for the sake of the event and not trying to get any monetary reward per se then you can just focus on having the best event that you can possibly have without having the concern for uh, the financial uh, capitalization of it. And something else that I saw you involved that seemed quite interesting to me is something called Parallelny Polis. Yeah, I was part of that for, for quite a bit. I'm no longer part of Parallelny Polis. It's, uh, it's like a community hubbing product which was pretty, pretty dedicated to crypto and like other technologies, but pretty mainly crypto. And yeah, this is this is where I originally started organizing my Ethereum meetups and workshops. And yeah, I also like opened up like the microspace in the basement like a while ago, which is no longer existent. And it's also a venue where like partly Prague was hosted. It was like same spot with uh, La Fabrica, which is a which is a theater behind it. And this is this is kind of this, this was like for a long time the the, the local crypto hub in Prague, which initially a whole bunch of bitcoiners would kind of like got better over time got better like got more diversified over time and yeah i mean it's a, it's a i think it's a very nice concept and it has been operated for like 10 years for a long time it has been the it, it was like there was this cafe on the ground floor or like still is but i guess mostly used by the by the locals or the people like using the cohort now which was the the oldest like crypto only operated place in the world was actually running since like 2014 i think and i always find it like a very nice experiment but yeah so also like after some time it's like time to move on so i wouldn't consider myself part of that project anymore yeah yeah i think that's one of the interesting parts of crypto that you can have those micro experiments that you don't really get to see anywhere else or like different types of governance so it's always interesting to see how different things pan out. It's been a pleasure, man, having you and learning about your experiences. And yeah, thank you for coming over thank and you. giving me a bit of, of your time. Thank you. thank you for like spending time with me and, and listening to my, to my mumbling for <laughs> one and a half hours. But I really, really appreciate that you're, you're building up a podcast. I'm, I'm always glad to see like interesting content. So uh, please keep on, keep on doing that. Yeah, looking forward to, to hear more episodes.